Warning, this episode contains themes of detail to injury, violence and alleged sexual assault, which some listeners may find distressing, so please be aware before listening any further. Starting date, Sunday, August 2nd, 2015, at 3 hours 2 minutes and 17 seconds a.m. County 911, what is the address of your emergency? Um, my name is Tom Martins. I'm at 160 Panther Creek Court, and we need help. Okay. What's uh, going on there? My my uh, daughter's husband, um, my son-in-law, um, got in a fight with my daughter. I intervened, and I, I think um, he's in bad shape. We need help. Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? I mean, he's, he's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. You know? All right, okay. Let's um, back up here just a minute. Welcome to Incriminated. Jason Corbett was from Janesboro in County Limerick, Ireland, born in 1976. He was one of eight children. Jason was very close with his siblings. He grew up with a very hard-working family and they all had a close bond together. Tracy, Jason's sister, describing him as bright and vivacious, one of her best friends. His twin brother Wayne said that he was not a shy man and that you'd hear him before you see him. He loved singing at parties. One of their favourite memories of him was spending days on the beach at Spanish Point in County Clare. Jason was a huge fan of sports, for example soccer and golf, but especially Irish sports such as the Limerick GAA and rugby. In his early 20s, Jason met his lovely first wife, Margaret Fitzgerald, or Mags, as she was affectionately known. This was at a party where Lynn, Mags's best friend, introduced them. Mags and Lynn were business partners also, managing a crush together in Raheen County Limerick. Inevitably, Jason and Mags fell for each other very quickly and got engaged, married and had two children, Jack born in 2005 and then Sarah in 2006. Their marriage was thought of as a very happy one and there were each other's soulmates, the family reported. They made the best of each other and always went on staycations as well as going abroad. Jason's career was also getting off to a great start at this stage. He was an executive with the company Multi-Packaging Solutions. 
In November 2006, just 12 weeks after the birth of Sarah, Jason's world would be turned upside down. On one night, while himself and Max were sleeping, Max woke up feeling very breathless. She was asthmatic. She tried using her nebulizer, but it wasn't helping as much as she thought it would, and her condition was worsening. An ambulance was called and Max was raced to the hospital. Sadly, Max suddenly died in the ambulance on the way over. The cause of death was a severe asthma attack. Jason went on to raise €38,000 for the Asthma Society after Max's death. Tracy said, quote, He just tried to do things for the people. He was always like that, always altruistic and just a really good guy. Jack and Sarah were everything to him. Then, in 2008, as Jason was adjusting to his new normal and grieving the death of his wife, he wanted to gain more structure and routine back into his life, especially for his children. All of Jason's friends and family were very supportive and helped him in every way, but he wanted to return to work full-time to provide for his family. In order for Jason to work and maintain a balanced lifestyle for the kids, Jason inquired into hiring an au pair. After interviewing a couple of different ones, he came across an au pair from the United States, looking to work in Europe. Her name, Molly Martins. She landed into Shannon Airport, County Clare in March 2008 to be formally introduced to the children for a trial run. Molly got on great with the children and built a connection with them more or less straight away. She accepted the position and decided to stay in Ireland working for Jason for the long haul. After a time span of seven months, the relationship between Jason and Molly was turning more romantic in nature. The family were initially worried about Jason mixing business with pleasure, but realised that he was happy and that was the most important thing to them. Jason's family didn't want him to be alone and thought that maybe Molly would be a positive influence in his life. Two years on, they were still together, in love and made a strong family unit. Here is the family talking with Ryan Tuberty on The Late Late Show. Uh, she arrived on the scene from the States, obviously, and they developed a relationship that went beyond au pair and uh, employer, I suppose. Um, how did you feel about that? Um, I mean, when Molly arrived into Jason's life, it was, a, one of, it was the lowest ebb in his life, um, and he was very vulnerable. And when they started to have a relationship, he smiled again. I was happy to see him smiling again you know he'd been through just such devastation um and everybody around him wanted him you know to have some happiness and hopefulness in his life she brought that to him she brought that to him yeah she did i i was concerned um because um obviously of jack and sarah and that molly was living in the house and the employer employee relationship and jason and i spoke about that and in june of that year actually um, Jason decided that he needed that break um, with Molly and she went back to America um, until August and the plan was for her to come back and uh, get another job and um, live separately so that Jason and her could have a relationship but not with her living in the house yeah. um, but it, it never transpired there was always a different excuse from Molly so from then on she was a fixture um, in the house.
In the year 2010, the happy couple got engaged on Valentine's Day in Freddy's Bistro in Limerick. All the family toasted to the occasion and Molly wasn't long planning for the big day back in the States. They married in 2011 in Bleak House, Tennessee, and it was a big lavish affair, as Molly came from a privileged upbringing. They are from Knoxville, Tennessee. Her mother Sharon being a doctor of mathematics who went to the elaborate Emory University in Georgia and her father Tom Martins, an FBI agent, who also studied to become a lawyer. Jason paid $49,000 towards the cost of the wedding. By 2012, back in Nimerick, getting on with married life, Molly was starting to miss her home and family in America and made it known to her new husband that she wanted to move back to the US. Jason warmed up to the idea and decided to pack up and sell his house in Ireland and move to Davidson County in North Carolina for a fresh start. Getting a job over there was very straightforward for Jason as his employers transferred him to a multi-packaging plant they operated at in Lexington in North Carolina. The Corbett family moved into a luxury home worth $390,000 or just over €324,000 which is situated at Panther Creek in a privileged gated residential community at the Meadowlands, north of Davidson County. Jason also reportedly gifted Molly $80,000 or €66,500 to decorate the house. Every neighbour, friend and colleague that knew Jason all had very fond things to say about him, especially his generosity, how he was very easygoing and also helped fellow Irish people settle into the US. Jason had an abundant amount of personality and he was very, very, he cared. Um, he was very compassionate. Sometimes that's like a missing link with some of your coworkers and especially managers, not all of them, obviously, but Jason had just a, he had a, a special touch about really, really being compassionate, really, really caring. I, I loved him. He, uh, he liked us. He was personable. He, he came to us if we ha if he had questions or if we had questions, it was, uh, you know, we could approach him and ask him and he knew if he did not know the, the answer, he knew someone that did have the answer and, and he just, he was just amazing. He just fit right in with us. He joked with us and 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 played around with us and just just a friend. He was such a great guy. He got to know everyone, not just the people he worked with. They were four years married altogether, and it all seemed a very happy marriage. Molly took in the kids as her own, and the Irish family would visit every once in a while. She was teaching school children how to swim on the side and Jason's career was going from strength to strength. However, in the year 2015, the marriage was beginning to fracture. Tracy, Jason's sister, said he would ring her and tell her that he wasn't happy, he was getting homesick and he felt lonely in the marriage, and that Molly was acting strangely and also erratic. Molly was also looking to adopt Jack and Sarah permanently in her name but Jason was very reluctant to do this. The reasons being was that Molly revealed to him that she has bipolar disorder, something Jason did not know until well into the marriage. She also allegedly drove the children to school whilst intoxicated a few times. Having heard this, Jason's family and friends also started to raise concerns of lies and odd behaviour that Molly had been presenting during the wedding. They said there was two sides of Molly, 
one when she lived in Ireland and one when she lived in the US. So therefore, Jason was beginning not to trust Molly and her intentions for him. Was it, did, did you see a different side to Molly either at the wedding or around that time? Yeah, around that time um, when we went over for the wedding, uh, I suppose we heard different stories. Um, the way she was was completely someone that we, we just didn't know. In what sense? From the person who was in, in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I suppose one conversation I was having at the wedding, uh, a couple had remarked um, how Sarah looks very like her mum. And I said, oh, did you see Meg's taking this out of photograph of her? And I said, no, her mum, Molly. Uh, but I said, Molly is not her, her mum. I said, Meg's is. And they look confused and I look confused. Then people started coming in the conversation and I kind of drifted away. Um, there was other incidents um, when we were kind of meeting the bridesmaids, um, just trying to get to know them and yeah. everyone be relaxed at the wedding. Yeah. Um, and it transpired, she had told them that how she met Jason was that she was friends with Megs and Jason. And when Megs passed away, that Jason reached out to her um, to help him with the children. Now, obviously, she never met Jason or Megs before Megs passed away. So very peculiar stories. Yeah, even further on, um, yeah. she had told us that she had a sister called Grace who died of leukemia. Now, as it transpired, she never had a sister called Grace. All oh, right, okay, so... We didn't know all this until... After the Jason and a lot of things like that after Jason passed away. Aggressive verbal arguments began between the two of them. It has also been reported that just weeks after marrying Jason, Thomas Martins advised his daughter Molly to secretly go to her lawyer to see what rights she had to the children. It was after this that she then reportedly hid recording devices in the house to capture arguments with Jason in a bid to win custody of the children. Rouse also started over Molly's spending habits as she blew away reportedly $90,000 on beauty treatments and fashion. Jason was getting sick of it and was ringing Tracy to tell her he was planning to move back to Ireland with the kids, but it would be difficult as Molly's behaviour was very rebellious. On the 2nd of August 2015, on a Sunday, 39-year-old Jason was at home asleep with Molly. The two children, 10-year-old Jack and 8-year-old Sarah, were also asleep in their own room and Molly's parents, Tom and Sharon, were asleep, who had come over for a weekend for family time. On this morning, an emergency call was made at 3am. Tom, Molly's father, made the call and talked with the operator. My daughter's husband, um, my son-in-law, got in a fight with my daughter. I intervened, and I I think um, he's in bad shape. We need help. Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? He's, he's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. You know? All right, okay. Let's um, back up here just a minute. Give me your address again, make sure I got it right. 160, uh-huh. Panther Creek Court. What is your name? My name is Tom Martin. All right, Tom, give me the phone number you're calling from. Two thousand, please. I, I don't know. Um, what's the phone number I'm calling from? I, I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't know. I'm, I'm the uh, father. I'm visiting. Uh, I, I don't know. Was he drinking? Uh, yes, he had been drinking during the course of the day. 
My partner's dispatching the ambulance and the officer while I get the information. Okay. All right. Are you right with him now? I am. How old is he? How old is he? 39. All right. Is he conscious at all? No. Is he breathing? can't tell. All right, what I need for you to do is I need someone to roll him onto his back, flat on his back. Okay, hang on. He's a big, heavy man. I can't do it. All right, is there anyone there that can help you? My daughter, and she's in terrible shape. Okay, someone needs to get him on the back, on his back. We need to verify his breathing. I'm trying, lady. Hang on. Okay, just put your phone on in, on the speaker. Okay, I've got him rolled over. All right, I want you to put one hand under his neck, the other hand on his forehead, and tilt his head back. Put your ear next to his mouth and tell me if you can see or hear or feel any breathing. I, I can't see any, no. All right, I'm sending the paramedics and ambulance to help you now. Stay on the line. Okay. All right. Tell me what happened. Did you hit him in the head or? Hit him in the head. With what? With a baseball bat. With a baseball bat. Yes, ma'am. He was choking. He was choking my daughter. He said, "I'm going to kill her." All right. We are sending the paramedics to help you now. Where's the baseball bat at? It's in the bedroom here with me. Okay. Just don't touch it anymore. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I'm putting some notes in. We've already got them started that way. Right. Just don't hang up. Stay with me. Yeah. All right, so we're going to start CPR. All right, he is still on his back. Yes. All right, I need you to make sure that his mouth and nose are clear. It's a mess. I know, you need to clear it. Okay. Okay. All right. Everything is clear? Yeah. As clear as I can get it. He's covered in blood. All right. Listen carefully. I'll tell you how to do chest compressions. Yeah. All right. Make sure that he's flat on his back with no pillows under his head. Yeah. Place the heel oh, of no your hand. No under his head. No, nothing under his head. Yeah. Got it. All right. First of all, tell your daughter to go unlock the door and turn on the front porch lights. Go unlock Place the heel of your hand on the breastbone in the center of his chest, right between the nipples. I'm somewhat familiar with this. Okay, well, I have to give the instructions. You just go ahead and do it if you know what to do. Put the other hand on top of that hand. Yeah. Pump the chest hard and fast at least twice per second, two inches deep. Let the chest come all the way up between the pumps. We're going to do this 600 times or until help can take over. Count out loud so that I can count with you. I'll set a pace for you. One, two, three, four. Faster if you can. One, two, three, four. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. I'm handing the phone to my daughter. All right, that's fine. Hey, are you with me? Yes. 
All right, listen to me. I need you to calm down so that we can help him, okay? All right, your dad's going to need some help pumping. I need you to get ready to pump, okay? okay. When he gets to 200 pumps, you're going to take over. Okay. He can show you how to place your hands, but I need you to stay calm. I'm, I'm certified. I, I just can't think. Okay, you have to stay calm. Let your training take over. We need we need to try and to do this to help him, okay? Okay. All right, keep your dad pumping. One, two, three, four. That rate. Right. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Good. Two, three, four. The 911 operator advised Tom to give Jason CPR and with their guidance Molly and Tom took turns on doing chest compressions until the paramedics arrived. Police and paramedics replied to the call and were on the scene quickly within 10 minutes. Jason was pronounced dead as soon as they arrived and checked his pulse. His undressed body was lying on the floor in the upstairs master bedroom. One of the paramedics on scene checked Jason overall quickly and initially determined that he suffered severe heavy trauma to the back of the head. Police on first impressions on the scene found that there had been a considerable scuffle. A significant amount of blood inside the bedroom, there was blood on the floor and on almost every wall of the bedroom, on the bedsheets and dry blood parts on Jason's body which begged the question, if there was dry blood on his body, how long did Molly and Tom leave it to call for help? Was this suspicious or not? They also noticed a blood-soaked brick paver that was on the bedroom floor, close to a lamp that had been knocked over, and there was a small 28-inch by 17-ounce metal baseball bat with blood on it as well, leaning against the dresser inside the bedroom. Police immediately checked on the children and found them asleep in their bedrooms. No harm was done to them. Molly went willingly to the sheriff's office that morning to give a statement as to what happened that night. She told the police that Jason's daughter Sarah had had a nightmare and thought the fairies were on her sheets, that there were bugs and lizards and that Sarah woke them up. Jason allegedly was very angry that he had been woken up from his sleep and an argument started between himself and Molly which escalated Jason aggressively fighting with Molly and choking her in the master bedroom. Tom was interviewed at the same time with different investigators. He told police that he heard a loud noise, also screaming, and he went to Molly's bedroom with the baseball bat. He then said to his horror he saw Jason strangling Molly, having had her in a chokehold, and a follow-up battle ensued between the three of them, but mostly Tom and Jason, leading to Jason's death. They were released without charge pending in further investigation. Meanwhile, in Ireland, Wayne, Jason's twin brother, received a call from Sharon Martins to say that Jason and Molly had had an argument and that Molly pushed Jason, he hit his head and that he is dead. Early evening, August the 2nd, 2015. Yeah. Uh, who called you to say what? Uh, Sharon Martins called me at about 10 past 6 in She being? Uh, Molly Martins' mother. And she just said that Molly and Jason had an argument. Molly pushed Jason, Jason hit his head, and Jason is dead. And she said, I asked, could I speak to Molly Martin? She said, no. She said, she's too upset. She put on the phone. 
and the phone call. The, and, the, and the call. And you then went to. I I was I was about two minutes away from the family home in sure. Limerick, so I went down to my parents' house yes. in Jamesboro, Limerick, and I. It sounds probably blunt at the time, but I just went in and told my mother that Jason was killed in the States. She was sitting in the living room at the time. A shocking thing to have to take in and to have to tell your mother. Five months on, with further investigation, having looked into both sides of the family, the horrific bloody crime scene and possible motives, Molly and Tom were arrested and charged with second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. They both pleaded not guilty and a joint trial was set. It also has to be noted that Jason's computer and mobile phone were never recovered from the scene and they were mysteriously vanished, reportedly. Also, to Molly's horror, Tracy, Jason's sister, was entrusted to have legal guardianship of Jason's children. This was stated in Jason's will. A big custody battle ensued and it was later ruled that the children be returned to Ireland with Tracy, where the children would be with their biological family and to adhere to their natural Irish roots. Your immediate thoughts got to be the children, Marilyn. Um, And what, did you get straight over to the States? Yes, um, myself, Tracy and Jason's best friend Paul um, got on a flight uh, straight over. Um, And Tracy was on the phone constantly about the children. But when we arrived, um, we were stonewalled. Not a single word from any of the Martins. No answering phones. So nothing. nothing. So we didn't know where Jason was. They wouldn't tell us. Um, So through a lot of phone calls, um, we found out where Jason was. Um, Subsequently, she knew then, so she moved Jason. So we couldn't find him. From a a morgue, was it? Yes, from a funeral home. We pleaded with them not to cremate Jason's body with the first crematorium that he was in. And she had found out that I had found out where he he was due to go to and moved. But it was a very kind nurse in the hospital that actually told us where Jason's body was going to. They didn't tell us. They had the last conversation we had with them. They told us to contact their attorneys. So we ended up um, where there was two sets of attorneys actually um, negotiating. Um, with Molly Martins for her to sign the release paper so we could send Jason home to his parents. And she eventually agreed once we paid all expenses up to that day and for anything after that. It was contingent on yes. you paying up yes. before she would... Yes, so I would have given her anything. Yeah. The, the children, I'm, I'm trying to, because I've met them earlier on, they, and they're so remarkable, I have to say. They're so polite and yeah. fun and almost oblivious, and yet they've had this horrible story in their lives. I can't believe how adjusted they are. But you needed to get them the hell out of there yes. fast. Yeah. Um, d- how did you manage to do that? Because you're dealing with people who are clearly going to be difficult to allow that to happen. How did you...? Well, there was a lot of effort to legally and legally to try and stop us from getting out of the country. Yeah. Um, you know, there were members of the Martins that went to Charlotte Airport um, who were federal agents and demanded to see the passenger manifest, for example, of all the flights to Ireland on a flight that we were due to go out. So it was very difficult. The kids had been told that they couldn't be, they wouldn't get out of the country because the FBI wouldn't leave them. Um, And legally they were trying to stop me from getting out of the country as well. So that concern about being served to keep us in the country again. 
So it was literally around planes, trains and automobiles. It was something like out of a James Bond movie. Just to, to get them clear to and get out of out. the jurisdiction. Yeah, we were, Certainly. I have to say we had, um, you know, we often think um, our councillors or TDs mightn't help us out. We had tremendous help here from um, a TD, Kieran O'Donnell, was huge in the middle of the night. Um, you know, taking calls, yes. um, Minister Charlie Flanagan and Councillor Jerry O'Dea. So yes. we were very lucky um, to have that support. When we were travelling, we had, um, we were in the ambassador's car, so we had diplomatic plates. Uh, we were checked in under pseudonyms into hotels. And when they got home, did, did, is, it, is it true that Molly tried to get a, hire a plane to fly a message yes. over yes, the kids' school? Is that that's true? true. What true. did she want to write in the message? Or do we know that much? Or? She wanted to, she had first tried to take out a half-page advert in a local newspaper. Um, she used to always say, wherever you are, my oh. love will find you. Um, and you can take from that um, what the message was. And she looked to hire several planes to fly over their school. She tried to befriend um, children who were in Jack and Sarah's class um, through social media. She was sending letters sure. to um, our house and our neighbour's house. So it was, it was horrendous. It was pretty tough trying to protect them. After a while, the murder trial began and the jury would now have to come to a conclusion on whether Jason was unlawfully murdered as he slept or whether there was a physical argument between Tom, Molly and Jason. If so, did Molly and Tom lawfully use deadly force or overkill to defend themselves. From the prosecution side, their case was that Jason was not an angry man and there was nothing untoward about Jason's behaviour the day before he was killed. It was their case that the fight started when he was fast asleep because he planned to leave Molly and move back to Ireland with the children. It was their understanding that he was viciously bludgeoned to death and then the 911 call was delayed so that Molly and Tom could come up with a story to cover themselves and each other. The court heard that on the 1st of August 2015, Molly's parents Tom and Sharon drove down from their home in Knoxville, Tennessee to visit the Corbetts for a weekend away. Tom and Sharon arrived at the house at around 8.30pm. Jason was in the driveway at the time with a neighbour, drinking a casual beer. Jason greeted Tom and Sharon and helped them unload their car and carried their bags inside. The family then had a dinner together. They ordered pizza. Jack the son did not have a dinner with them as he was at another kids party and only returned home at around 11pm. David Fritz, a witness on behalf of the prosecution, testified that he lived next door to the Corbett's and that they often socialised together. They spent the afternoon together on the 1st of August having a few beers outside their house. David told the court that he was with Jason from 3.30pm to around 8.30pm and testified that his behaviour was normal and he was very calm. When the Martins arrived at 8.30pm, David testified that Jason's manner did not change and he observed Jason greeting them and helping them unload the car. The prosecution focused on the scientific forensic evidence in the case. 
the court heard that the evidence showed that Tom hit Jason in the head with a metal baseball bat and that Molly admitted that she tried to hit Jason in the head with a brick paver. And the jury were also told that the evidence supported a theory that Molly did in fact hit Jason in the head with the brick as there was so much blood on it. The court heard from prosecution that a violent attack had taken place and that was clear from the injuries that Jason sustained and the blood found inside the house. He was hit multiple times with the bat and then hit with the brick. Next on the stand was paramedic Amanda Hackwork. She told the court that when she touched Jason's body, his torso felt cool, suggesting that he was left there for a period of time. There was also dried blood stains on his body and she asked a colleague how long did the Martins say they waited before calling 911. The Martins claimed they called the emergency services as soon as Jason was on the ground. Sergeant Barry Alfred of Davidson County Emergency Services testified that when attempting to lift Jason's chin, all of his fingers on his left hand side went inside Jason's skull. He observed severe heavy trauma to the back of the head. Paramedic David Bent testified that Jason had dry blood on him and he told the jury that he saw Molly attempting to perform chest compressions and those compressions were not effective at that stage. The chief medical examiner Craig Nelson told the court that he carried out the autopsy on Jason's body. The court heard that the cause of death was blunt force head trauma and the manner of death was ruled homicide. Dr Nelson testified that there were multiple blunt force injuries found on Jason's body. There were 10 different areas of impact on the head. At least two different areas of these impacts had characteristics which suggested that had been multiple blows. There were two large lacerations on the back of Jason's head. They also showed evidence of repeated blows. Dr Nelson could not say exactly how many blows there were because with repeated blows there may be more injury or more damage of already injured tissue but he could say with certainty that there were at least 12 blows. Dr Nelson testified that there was an almost triangular area where a segment of Jason's skull was missing. The doctor told the court that he was of the opinion that with the 10 different areas of impact on Jason's head, you would expect a loss of consciousness based on the underlying skull fractures in the two complex areas. He told the court that one of the blows happened after death. The toxicology report presented that Jason had an alcohol level of just 0.02%. This meant that he was below the legal limit. The defence were trying to refute this saying that Jason drank all day and Jason's alcohol blood level would have come down after the time of his death. The presence of the drug trazodone was also found. In regards to the trazodone, the court heard testimony from expert pharmacologist Dr Russell Patterson. Dr Patterson testified that while trazodone is normally an antidepressant, it is rare for it to be prescribed as such, as it is not very successful in that area. Dr Patterson told the court that there is one significant side effect associated with trazodone, and that is to enhance sleep. Next, the court heard that Molly and Jason were patients at Kernersville Primary Care and nurse practitioner Katie Wingate testified that Molly asked for sleep aid. 
She was prescribed trazodone on the 30th of July 2015 and she filled her prescription that day. Jason had not been prescribed this drug. The jury heard that Jason attended Kernersville Primary Care two weeks before his death and said that he felt lightheaded and more stressed and angry lately for no reason. The prosecution also called Davidson County Sheriff's Office Lieutenant Frank A. Young to testify. Lieutenant Young told the court that he took evidence photos of any injuries Molly may have had on her body. He testified that he observed her scratching and pulling on her neck with her hand. He made numerous requests for her to stop. He did not notice any injuries on her apart from some dried blood on her cheek, forehead and hair. Lieutenant Young testified that there were no injuries on Tom either. There was blood on the front of his shirt, on the face of his watch and red stains around a couple of his fingernails. There was no damage to his glasses. The jury continued on to hear about Deputy Dillard's written report on the incident. This report noted that Molly was very clearly in shock and was in the fetal position on the ground beside the car. He recalled that Molly was making crying noises but he didn't see any visible tears. She was also rubbing her neck repeatedly. She would do it while continuing to make crying noises. When Molly attended to get checked out by the paramedics, they examined her and they observed redness on Molly's throat. They asked her if her neck hurt and she told them that it did and said that she was choked. The paramedics noted the redness and soreness but they did not observe any of the injuries on Molly or Tom other than a small bruise on Molly's arm. That same day Molly submitted a written statement about the incident to the police. The statement said my husband Jason Corbett was upset that she woke and an argument ensued with him telling me to shut up etc and he applied pressure to my throat and started choking me. At some point I screamed as loud as possible. He covered my mouth and then started to choke me again with his arm. My father came in the room and I cannot remember if he said something or just hit Jason to get him off me. Jason then grabbed the bat from him and I tried to hit him with a brick that I had on my nightstand. I do not remember clearly after that. One of the most important parts of the prosecution's case was the testimony from blood spatter expert Stuart James. He testified that Jason was going down towards the floor as he was being hit, he concluded. He noted that, number one, in relation to the blood spatter on Tom's boxer shorts, there are impact splatters which would be congruent with him being in close contact to Jason when the blows were struck to Jason's head. The blood on the shorts was confirmed to be Jason's. Number two, there was also blood spatter and small spatters on the front underside of the left leg of these shorts and that also dovetailed with Tom being close to and above Jason while he was being hit. Thirdly, blood spatter was found on Tom's red polo shirt. These were also impact spatters and were consistent with Tom being close up to Jason when blows were struck. That blood was also Jason's. Number four, there was blood spatter on Molly's pyjama top and there were worn impact spatters and were matched with Molly being in close proximity to Jason when the blows were struck also. The fifth finding was that there were blood splatters on the lower legs and cuff area of Molly's pyjama bottoms and there were also impact blood splatters consistent with her being in close proximity to Jason when the blows were struck as he was getting closer to the floor. 
The sixth point was that the concrete block had transfer and spatter stains, as well as hair fragments on it. The stone's condition was in conjunction with having caused more than one impact to Jason's head. The last finding that the blood spatter expert found was that there were a transfer stains and hair fragments on the baseball bat. Those stains and fragments confirmed the conclusion that the bat's condition was consistent with having impacted Jason's head. The court heard that Molly suffered with mental health issues for a long period of time and wanted to adopt Jason's children but he would not allow her to do so. In their closing statement, the prosecution suggested that Tom and Molly had delayed the 911 call so that they could make up a story and that was evident from how cool Jason's body felt when the paramedics arrived. It was the defence theory that Tom and Molly were not guilty and that Jason died as a result of reasonable grounds that were used by Tom to defend himself and his daughter but there were a number of questions that needed to be answered such as why was the brick inside the room and why did Tom have a bat? As the first question was not answered at the trial, the second one was. Tom had the bat as he bought it as a gift for Jack. Jack arrived home late, the night of the 1st of August. The court heard that Tom decided not to give it to him until the next day. Tom took a big risk and decided to testify at the trial. He testified that he and his wife visited the Corbett family. He said that Jason was pleasant and social that evening. The jury learned that prior to marrying Molly, Jason had transferred money to America to purchase the house in Davidson County, so would there be no mortgage on it. And he also transferred the money to furnish it. The court also heard that Jason transferred over $49,000 for the marriage to Tom. Tom was asked if he hated Jason. He testified that he never said he hated him, but admitted that he had conversations which were negative in tone or critical of Jason's behaviour, and that he just did not like him. The court heard that Tom and Sharon slept in the spare room the night of August the 1st, that the bedroom is situated just below the bathroom, and that was next to Jason and Molly's bedroom. Tom told the court that he woke up when he heard a scream and loud noises above their bedroom. He jumped out of bed and grabbed the metal bat that remained with his luggage by the bed and ran upstairs. Tom entered Jason and Molly's bedroom and told the court that Molly and Jason were facing each other and Jason had his hands around Molly's neck. He remembered it very clearly because it was like a scene that remained frozen in his mind. Tom said he entered the bedroom and he closed the bedroom door and Jason got Molly into a chokehold with her neck in the crook of his arm. Tom asked Jason to let go and he testified that Jason said I'm going to kill her. At that point, Jason moved towards the bathroom still holding on to Molly. Tom told the court that he swung the baseball bat at the back of Jason's head. The impact, according to Tom, had no effect on Jason. Tom continued to hit Jason as many times as he could to distract him because he now had Molly in a very tight chokehold and she was no longer wiggling, he testified. Tom testified that Jason dragged Molly into the bathroom but he could not close the door as Tom was in the way. Tom hit Jason in the head with the bat again. Jason moved back into the bedroom still with Molly in a chokehold and when all three were back in the bedroom Tom swung the bat at Jason. 
Jason reached out and grabbed hold of the bat that gave Molly an opportunity to get away from him. Tom testified that as they struggled for the bat, Jason shoved Tom across the width of the bed and Tom fell face first onto the floor. He heard Molly scream, Dad, don't hurt my dad. When Tom got up, he saw Jason holding the bat, standing in a good athletic position, looking between himself and Molly. Tom and Jason fought for control of the bat and Molly picked up the brick paver that was sitting on her nightstand and used it to strike Jason. Tom got the bat from Jason and hit him until he was down on the ground. Molly decided not to testify at the trial. The jury noted that Jason had a life insurance policy and that Molly was the full beneficiary. Tom and Molly were found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to 20 to 25 years each in the custody of the North Carolina Division of Adult Correction. Both Tom and Molly appealed their cases based on a number of different points. One major factor was the interviews that the children gave after their father's death that the jury did not hear. When the trial took place, Jack and Sarah had both moved home to Ireland and as such were beyond the subpoena power of the trial court. They wanted the children's hearsay statements from the interview to be used at trial on behalf of the defence. The trial court denied their motion to admit the children's hearsay statements. The defence believed that the statements should have been heard by the jury. Molly claimed that Jason had been abusive towards her throughout the course of the marriage and that she was victim of domestic abuse, but no tangible evidence was put forward at the trial in relation to the alleged abuse. Molly had never reported it and she didn't testify at trial, but she argued that these statements the children made cooperated it and they should have been heard by the jury. Jason was growing addicted to the narcotic of domination. He was very controlling and he was very possessive. The first few months, you just kind of brush that off. You think, oh, well, he just loves me so much. But those kind of things got worse. He was uncomfortable with you socializing. He was paranoid that I would develop some feelings for someone else and or that somebody would look at me the wrong way. He was worried you were going to leave him for another man. Um, he was worried about a lot of things. You know, he'd come home from buying new golf club for $500 and he'd open the fridge and there would be a case of raspberries and that would, that would be it. We can't afford raspberries and he would throw the raspberries on the floor. According to Molly, it's a side of Jason no one sees because to friends, he's the life of the party. The husky 260-pound Irishman always has a smile on his face at neighborhood gatherings. But in private... He would dictate what she should wear or what she should shop for or when she should be home or when she should or shouldn't leave or text her repeatedly or engage in just various forms of you know, controlling behavior, demand to see her phone, uh, look at her computer history, that sort of thing. Did the physical abuse become more frequent or more extreme? Everything became more frequent and more extreme except for the apologies. They became less frequent. Marriage, she says, that only gets worse when the lights go out. Sometimes he would be angry and choking me would turn into something sexual or sometimes the other way around. So sometimes he would choke you in anger and sometimes he would choke you during sex. Did that scare you? Everything always felt so real and so scary 
in the moment when it was happening, did you ever pass out? I did. And it did always make me think of, of Mags, his first wife, and wonder if that's what happened to her. Molly's last statement was made when Tom Martins allegedly had a conversation with Mags's father and he said that he thought Jason had something to do with her death. But the father of Jason Corbett's first wife made a legal statement refuting Tom Martin's claim that he told Mr Martins that Jason had murdered his daughter, the trial heard. Mr Fitzpatrick visited a lawyer in Ireland before his death to make a statement that Mr Martin's claims were untrue and the court heard this as well. But the interviews that involved the children were crucial for defence as they seemed to corroborate about Molly stating that she was the victim of domestic abuse and the argument that started that night when Jason woke up after Sarah had a nightmare. The prosecution fought back these claims and said both Jason's children had been told in the days before his death that they would be moving back to Ireland. Tracy, his sister, also revealed an insurance policy payable on Miss Martin's husband's death had been altered in the months before August 2015. This policy listed his two children as well as his American wife as beneficiaries, Miss Martin's getting 50% and his two children 25% each allegedly. However, the policy was altered by computer a few months before the murder so that Miss Martin's was the sole beneficiary at the time of her husband's death. One of the hidden recording devices that Molly hid to record their arguments was found by one of the children who thought it was a lost mobile phone. Molly had complained to neighbours about how Jason treated her despite the fact in the 10 months before his death she had spent a lot of money on herself. Mr Corbish was so worried about this extreme spending he had pleaded with his wife to stick to a strict budget. Molly had also hinted to neighbours that she was the victim of domestic abuse but the book Tracy written after Jason's death reveals that one of his children came across Molly deliberately striking herself with a heavy hairbrush so as to leave a bruise reportedly. Some neighbours were so worried by her strange claims that they thought about bringing her allegations to Jason in the weeks before his murder. Just the day before his death, Jason had been reportedly being made feel embarrassed over his weight by Molly in front of both friends and neighbours. And he said to be very hurt by her comments that he left a local party and went home alone. His last social media post was about how people would question all the good things about you but believe the bad things without a second thought. Tracy said that this humiliation was the final straw for her brother over his wife's bad behaviour and he began plans to bring his children back to Ireland and he even begun plans to invest in a business in Nimerick with his brother. Going back to the year 2007, Almost a year before she met Jason, Molly was in a relationship with Keith McGinn. The two of them connected over a dating site and after a few emails they decided to meet and the two of them instantly connected. Keith was quoted saying, We eventually went out for a late Mexican dinner and everything went perfectly. The whole night seemed magical. Molly was 25 back then, living in a two-bedroom apartment owned by her parents. This was in Knoxville, Tennessee, where she was also teaching children how to swim and also being a nanny. As the relationship quickly developed, after a month, Keith moved into the apartment. 
Soon afterwards, Molly confided in him about her mental health struggles. At this time, Keith himself was suffering from depression, which he says which provided a common understanding between the two of them. Quote, to her credit, Molly told me early on in the relationship that she is bipolar. I didn't think much about it because medications had her stabilised and everything was blissful and bright. A month and two into our relationship, she got a staph infection. The infection medications she was given overrode her bipolar medications and knocked everything out of balance for her, like someone flipped a switch. Keith also said that Molly was the saddest person I had ever been around. She would cry for hours in bed. Seeing the person I loved suffering so much was a very trying situation, he said, and I did everything I could, but nothing seemed to help. So therefore, Molly was unable to keep her job as a nanny and Keith had to be the one that to earn all the money and pay the rent. Keith was quoted saying, At the beginning, the relationship was amazing, but once her depression took over, things were stressful. Heartbreaking, actually. I never knew what mood Molly would be in when I got home from work. I walked on eggshells most of the time, trying my best to keep things stable, but things were actually tense. We were both going down on a sinking ship. For better or worse, mental illness has such a negative stigma and Molly didn't want people to know the truth about the situation. I finally swallowed my pride and sought out a therapist, he said. As the relationship came under increasing strain, Keith became really worried about the plethora of drugs Molly was taking. Um, at one time, he claims she was being prescribed 16 pills or different medications a day and another 10 to be used as needed. Molly's relationship with her parents also became tense during this difficult period in her life, according to Keith. And they too had become exasperated by her behaviour, he said. Quote, her parents were very much aware of her mental health issues. They are all well aware of the many doctors, the medications she was taking. They knew all about it. They did try to help and they lived relatively close and they would come over. I don't know how much they actually helped out but they did try to. I felt that they were at times overwhelmed and frustrated about the whole thing. In a bid to preserve the, his girlfriend's delicate state, Keith surrendered to Molly's pleas and they got engaged on her birthday. In a book he authored, he said he bought a fanal ring, which was worth $150, but he said it was completely her idea to get engaged. Keith said she thought that this was going to be the cure, but I knew that it was not, but I thought it would help for a while. He said it only worked for like one day. Keith was also quoted saying she was always saying that kids would make everything happy. Quote, she ended up getting pregnant. He said, I was terrified because I knew how many medications she was on. On September the 16th, 2007, Molly sadly suffered a miscarriage. Quote, she woke up one day and said she'd had a dream that she miscarried. She wasn't feeling good, so we went to the hospital and her parents came. They said that she had miscarried very early on in the pregnancy. She was very heartbroken. It is said five months later, in February 2008, Molly's mental health worsened and she had to go into hospital at the Emory Hospital. She spent four days receiving treatment and then returned home with Keith and they tried to continue and save their relationship. However, this did not work.
and she went off to Ireland to work for Jason and Keith never saw her again. But now in February 2020, the North Carolina Court of Appeal heard that Tom and Molly were entitled to a new trial. The North Carolina Supreme Court upheld the decision to the Court of Appeal. They were released on bail on $200,000 bond pending a retrial. They were ordered to surrender their passports and banned from having contact with Jack and Sarah. Both of the children have since recanted the statements they made in the interviews when they were younger. They said they were coached to lie about domestic abuse. They have since told the Davidson County District Attorney's Office from the residents in Ireland that Molly coerced them into making those statements which are completely false and that it was actually Molly who had been abusive. No decision has been made yet whether Tom and Molly will be offered a plea deal or if not when a retrial will take place. But would a retrial work if the children's statements have been recanted and how can Tom and Molly ever explain for the amount of violence and blood that they inflicted on Jason that night, self-defence or not? It seems from the evidence that Jason didn't have a chance to stand up even, but you listeners can come up to your own conclusions on that and look up the crime scene photos and see for yourself. Jason's daughter is now 15 and is a published children's author who helps other grieving children who have lost their parents and is a great advocate for helping other teenagers her age, assisting them with their mental health problems throughout the pandemic. She has also protested about the decision of the retrial. Taken to social media, she posted a photo saying, Today is a sunny day. My mum Tracy bought me for ice cream. It made me think of how Molly Martins brought me and Jack for an ice cream the day after killing my dad. Quote, when we cried, she told us he's dead and to just get over it. My dad, Jason Corbett, was murdered by her and I know today she has the freedom to walk into any shop and buy whatever she wants, including an ice cream. I didn't want the ice cream anymore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Incriminated. I'm your host, Francesca Hayes. You can find us on Instagram at IncriminatedPod, or you can find us on Twitter at IncriminatedPO1. We are now on YouTube now, and you can search it by Incriminated True Crime Podcast. Intro music is by Owen Leonard and other music is by Mivavi Editor Plus. All research links and accredited journalists will be linked down below in the episode details. For any requests you can also email at incriminatedpod.yahoo.com and I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Enjoy the rest of your week and take care.